0: The Matheson Pensions Podcast, presented by Deirdre Commons, partner in the Employment, Pensions and Benefits Group at Matheson. This podcast series examines the topical legal issues affecting the operation and management of occupational pension schemes in Ireland, and is relevant to pension scheme trustees, employers, pension practitioners, and industry professionals. Hello and welcome. I'm Deirdre Cummins and I'm a partner in the pensions group at Matheson. In June this year, we hosted a seminar on working beyond retirement age. And after the seminar, we received so many requests for information and the materials that we're now making them available to you in audio form. To set the scene, a panel of experts discussed the various legal issues that arise for employers and pension scheme trustees when employees want to work beyond their contractual retirement age. These issues include setting out the current position in Ireland on mandatory retirement ages and how employers are now dealing with these requests on the ground to include how they're treating pension arrangements. We also had some consideration and discussion on whether these arrangements pose any difficulties from a discrimination perspective. Our panel included Geraldine Carr, a partner in the employment team at Matheson, and Jane McKeever, a senior associate in the pensions group. We were also joined that morning by Gary Clark, a senior retirement consultant with Aon. So I began by asking Geraldine to set out the current position on mandatory retirement ages in Ireland.
1: Morning, everyone. So I suppose, as you'll all be aware, the the Employment Equality Acts now say that it's not age discrimination for a mandatory retirement age, provided that they can objectively justify that age by reference to a legitimate aim and where that aim is appropriate and necessary for their organization. So I suppose what does that mean? It means that employers need to be very satisfied that they have, in fact, fixed a retirement age. And they can do that in a number of ways. The most obvious being you set it out in the contract. Of employment as an express term but another alternative would be that it might be contained in the employee handbook and um, if it is you need to be um, very careful that that handbook has been communicated to employees and that it's updated from time to time and brought to employees attention. Another. I suppose way of fixing a retirement age would be by collective agreement and if there are unions involved or as well it could be implied through a very well-established custom and practice in the organisation or in that particular industry sector and then of course with public sector roles there's uh, certain statutes that will set out mandatory retirement ages for particular roles within the
0: public service and um, so key
1: thing is is to fix it in the first place.
0: And Dara, can I just pick you up on the objective justification point there? You said that if you have a mandatory retirement age, you have to objectively justify it. Maybe you can talk us through how an employer would objectively justify a retirement age or what are examples of that?
1: Yeah, sure. And this is the area where we get asked most questions, I suppose, because that whole concept of what is objective justification can seem a little bit woolly in practice so there's no statutory guidance on it and most of the examples that we do have have been established through case law either of the Irish courts or of the European courts so there's also a WRC code of practice on longer working that was published in 2017 and that very helpfully sets out certain examples as well of what has been held to be objective justification so common examples would be health and safety grounds so for example if employees are in safety critical roles, like um, drivers, for example, or pilots or those in physically demanding roles, the employer can objectively justify setting a mandatory retirement age for employees in those roles, but before doing so it should ensure it's carried out a risk assessment of the hazards in the workplace and to, I suppose, to support its argument that it is uh, necessary and appropriate to have the retirement age for that particular role. Another one that's very frequently upheld in practice is succession planning. So the courts have accepted that it can be necessary to retire older workers in order to facilitate the recruitment and the promotion of younger workers within the organisation. And then in a similar vein to that actually is the concept of creating an age balance within the workplace. So that's also been accepted as objective justification where the employer can show to the courts that actually it benefits the organisation to have a Wider mix of skills and experience, um, and that having an age balance in the workplace allows for the recruitment of um, younger workers with perhaps differing skill sets and experience, and same in the same way as recruiting older workers can bring in that additional experience and skill as well. And then finally, I suppose the last ground that's been. Uh, commonly accepted as as sufficient objective justification is intergenerational fairness. So again, this idea that it can help with encouraging employees to stay with the business and to be motivated by the prospect of promotion within an organization if um, employees are required to retire at the older age, opening up roles for younger employees to be promoted into.
0: Okay. Okay. And Jane, then can I move on to you to ask you to talk about pension schemes usually have normal retirement ages as well.
2: Yeah, of course and uh, traditionally I suppose it made sense for the pension scheme, the contract, uh, both to have the same pension age and that was aligned with the state pension age. Um, People retired at 65, they didn't tend to live for that long after they retired Uh, so people just walked off into the sunset, everything was fine as far as employers and pension schemes were concerned. A number of things I think have happened over recent years that have changed that. Uh, Firstly, people started living longer, uh, more quickly than had been anticipated. That created a funding strain for a lot of pension schemes which were finding that they then had to pay pensions for 20, 30 years instead of the 10, 15 years that might have been um, originally thought of or certainly was the case when pension schemes started to be used to provide people's retirement benefits. Uh, so that certainly, um, as I say, put a funding strain on schemes and when during the last recession when the state pension age was increased some schemes certainly uh, took the opportunity to increase the normal retirement age under the scheme up to 66, 67, 68 in line with the state pension age which took a little bit of funding strain off the schemes and did mean that the scheme then didn't necessarily have the same uh, normal retirement age as people's contracts. The state pension age changing in general brought a lot of focus on to the retirement age in pension schemes and like that had an impact on both DB and DC schemes. In DC schemes there seems to be a problem around adequacy of contributions so it's a relatively new way of providing people's uh, pension benefits and when people started to get to 65 um, maybe having had an employer employee 5% matching contribution over a period of time, it's not necessarily going to be enough or certainly not comparable with the pensions people would have received from defined benefit schemes. So a lot of people are finding they can't necessarily afford to retire or certainly need the state pension element. To make their retirement kind of benefits sustainable and workable. So, once the retirement, the state pension age moved up to 66, that's creating a difficulty for the DC members. Also, on the DB side, a lot of those schemes are integrated. So, they were uh, set up on the basis that the pension benefit was calculated taking the state pension into account so the 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 overall pension assumed that you were going to get the state pension Mm -hmm. clearly when the state pension increased and it's going to increase further there's a gap there Um, those schemes had to consider whether they were going to try and bridge that gap so provide the element that was missing now from the state pension or if they were going to continue providing the pension calculated as if you were getting the state pension Um, because of the funding issues that DB schemes have experienced, most of them weren't in a position to think about providing a bridging pension. So again, you've got a, a gap there in the income that people are receiving. And that's certainly, I think, one of the factors driving the requests from employees to employers to at least allow them to stay until they're getting their state pension.
0: Okay. And then, Gary, I'll just ask you to kind of round out the picture there and talk to us a little bit about life assurance schemes or risk and disability so they're built around 65 as well being the normal retirement age.
3: Yeah, so I mean life assurance benefits typically are set up under the same trust uh, as your pension benefits so uh, they would share a common retirement age uh, and disability benefits would typically share a an end date that is consistent with your contractual retirement age uh, and uh, as Jane said they would typically have been aligned historically. Um, but increasingly, obviously, with the whole issue of longer working lives, uh, we are beginning to see a, a bit of a disconnect uh, mm-hmm. between uh, sort of retirement age and the date at which those benefits uh, are now uh, intended to cease.
0: Okay, so it's really all roads leading to 65, and maybe 65 is not where we want to be anymore. So, Jerry, if I go back to you then, so if an employee comes to you as an employer and wants potentially to stay on beyond 65, what are the initial considerations for an employer if they're met with that request?
1: Yeah, um, I suppose, First of all, an employer should step back and consider, look at the broader, I suppose, landscape. So it should ask itself, well, okay, am I satisfied that I do have a fixed retirement age that's been communicated to employees, that employees are aware of? And then secondly, the employer should consider has it sufficient objective justification that it can stand over if the employee challenged the enforcement of that retirement age in order to be able to defend that challenge. But then secondly, I suppose on a broader policy ground, the employer should look at, well, is this request likely to be a once-off request, or are there likely to be further requests coming down the track for people to work longer than retirement age? And in that regard, it might want to consider a number of options, and we're working with a lot of clients on this at the moment, where they're considering, I suppose... Do they increase the their existing compulsory retirement age from we'll use the example of sixty five to perhaps sixty eight in order to align it with the state pension age that will increase to sixty eight in, in twenty twenty eight? Or will they actually abolish it entirely? Or perhaps, you know, employers are looking to stick with the age that they have of age sixty five but then assess requests to work for longer than that on a case-by-case basis. And again, they might consider um, consultancy arrangements as a way of of facilitating employees to provide a certain service post-retirement age if there is, you know, a potential scope for that but again with that option it can be fraught with uh, potential risks there if it is if there's a risk of the employee or the person challenging that it's not a true independent contractor relationship and that they're actually just extending their employment so there's a number of options to consider I suppose.
0: Yeah that's interesting and, and maybe you can't answer this actually but just when you're speaking there it strikes me like why would an employer choose one approach over the other there considering mm-hmm. there are so many ways to approach this?
1: Yeah. Yeah. and I guess it really depends on their individual circumstances and on their organisation um, and the makeup of the organisation so um, for example they with with maintaining the contractual retirement age as opposed to abolishing it entirely, at least that retains a lot of control for the employer, both in terms of planning its workforce, its long-term strategy, it has a degree of certainty on it. And again, it's also an advantage, I guess, if there are employees in or around retirement age that an employer doesn't have to look at some other mechanism of having to exit that employee and perhaps rely on other grounds for um, a potential challenge to that exit. Or that dismissal, such as you know incapacity if they are incapable of performing the role, and obviously that throws up a lot of other issues in terms of potential exposure there. But that's one element why an employer might want to retain the ages to maintain control. And then offering fixed-term contracts gives a degree of flexibility to the employers so they can assess that on a case-by-case basis as to whether it's appropriate for the individual involved, but also if an employer does offer a fixed-term contract to an employee post-retirement age, they do need to be able to objectively justify that fixed-term contract in itself as well. And I know I use that term quite a lot, but that's a very different objective justification to the objective justification the employer would have had at the outset when it was setting its retirement age. Because if you think about it, you're looking at the the objective justification at two different points in time you have to look at it when you're offering the fixed-term contract to the employee and consider okay is this an appropriate and necessary means of getting our aim of I don't know succession planning or intergenerational fairness or something else or bridging a gap I guess between um, resources and the organization.
0: Okay and Gary then if I can bring you in there what are you seeing in practice in terms of what the employers are doing or what they're looking
3: for? Yeah I mean I think a number of years ago cases where people looked to work longer tended to be just individuals uh, and they were addressed typically probably through fixed term contracts Um, I think increasingly now you're seeing organisations take a more holistic view Uh, And trying to work out, you know, how are we going to cater for perhaps, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a flow, particularly as the retirement age increases. Uh, I think a lot of organizations looking towards 2021 when the gap will obviously increase uh, between 65 up to 67. So um, I I think more and more uh, a holistic view, but certainly uh, fixed-term contracts uh, were definitely a feature.
0: And is it fair to say then that Employers generally are moving away from fixed-term contracts more and more.
3: That's been our experience, um, and I think again, you know, the, the client base, you know, the larger employers, I think, are, are now looking at this as this is an issue that's not going to go away. Uh, I think in the past it was one or two and it was a kind of needs must, you know, let's just deal with this case and we'll worry about, you know, the, the bigger picture later. But I think it is coming onto the, the agenda now where it's kind of, well, this issue is here to stay, so let's actually sit down and, as just said, step back mm-hmm. think about it a bit more and then actually, you know, plan for the future.
0: And is what you're seeing then they're moving out the retirement age just for everybody, maybe to 67 or 68 or...? Yeah, yeah a mixed LPC, bag. Yeah.
3: Um, certainly, you know, if they're moving it out for everybody to one date, six days, seems yeah. to be the, the date that they're looking. And, uh, the... A lot of companies look at tiering it. So uh, depending on your year of birth setting, the, uh, the sort of the new retirement age, if you like, uh, and that's distinct from normal retirement age, but the new retirement age from an employment side, be looking at 66, 67, 68.
0: Okay, okay. And Jerry I see you nodding there. I mean, is there any concerns about that in relation to objective justification if you're running different retirement ages for different cohorts of the population?
1: Um, you can have different uh, different retirement ages for different roles within an organization. So you could objectively justify a certain retirement age, for example, with the safety critical roles. It's an easy example okay. versus, you know, a different role in the organization. So that that would um, stand up. But secondly, then I suppose to go with Gary's example, whereby employers might be maintaining 65, but then almost giving that as an option to employees. So yes, you can continue to retire at 65 if you wish. But if you wish to stay on, their new retirement age is now 68. That certainly, works but the only downside of that with a, from an employment perspective is it's more difficult to enforce retirement at 65 so if there was you know in order to align with workforce planning and and planning your organization or your team needs um if there is an individual that you would like to um retire at 65 you're you're you then have moved that age i guess to 68 so um it'll be much more difficult to enforce retirement at the earlier age so
0: you're losing control exactly yeah okay yeah. Okay. And Jane, if I can bring you back in there then, just what are the considerations on the pension side if somebody wants to stay on?
2: Well, similarly to the employment side, I think it's probably a good idea to take a macro approach rather than looking at it on a case-by-case basis. I think um, the fact that at the moment the government is allowing people to uh, take job seekers' allowance between 65 and 66 has kind of pushed the can down the road little bit in terms of the number of requests that are coming through from employees to stay on to 66, but when when the state pension age moves up again to 67 and 68, which is happening relatively quickly, and uh, there's talk certainly now of it moving out beyond that, I think we're going to see a kind of snowball effect in terms of the amount of people that are coming looking to stay in employment beyond 65. Um, so from on, on a high level, I guess the employer needs to look at two things. One is what kind of benefit provision does it want to make for people who are remaining in employment beyond 65 in terms of their pension. And they also need to take a look at their scheme documents to see if the approach that they're planning to take can be facilitated through the scheme documents as they are now or whether they need. Um, So, in terms of what kind of benefits they want to provide, it's certainly the case that employers aren't necessarily prepared to continue the approach that was taken pre-65. So in defined benefit schemes, they need to think about, is accrual going to continue? We're not necessarily seeing employers willing. To do that, perhaps they might want to look at doing defined contribution provision for service post-65. If they're in a defined contribution scheme, they need to think about, are they going to continue employer and employee contributions into that arrangement past 65? And then in terms of the scheme documentation, I just would say that most schemes, I took a look at a number of schemes that we work with um, over the past to see what they do provide in terms of staying in employment beyond 65 and most of them actually do provide for late retirement and what they tend to provide is that uh, on the defined benefits side accrual stops so pensionable service is service up to 65 you remain a member of the scheme but you're not building up any more benefits. And then you can either take your lump sum or your entire benefit at 65 or defer part or all of that until the date of your actual retirement. So that would be the status quo under a lot of those schemes. And the position is similar enough under defined contribution schemes. Contributions tend to stop at 65 on both the employer and employee side. And again, you can take your benefits at 65, which was your normal retirement age, or you can defer part or all of them to your date of actual retirement. So I guess employers need to think about, is that sufficient to bring forward the plans that they have for their employment population, or do they need to make changes to that?
0: So again, there are a lot of options there in terms yeah. of how you deal with the pension. And maybe, Gary, I can ask you, what again, what you're seeing in practice in terms of what employers are electing to do. Are they continuing benefits? Are they putting people from the DB into the DC? What are you seeing...
3: Yeah so uh, I mean <clears throat> the treatment probably differs between existing hires and say new hires so you may change the normal retirement age for new hires to align it with your your new you know retirement age For existing hires, you tend to leave non-retirement age as it is simply because it's pretty complicated, uh, certainly in a a DB context, to change retirement age Mm -hmm. Um, and use, uh, as Jane said there, uh, the late retirement provisions uh, either in their their current state uh, or you may modify them Mm -hmm. uh, to allow for things like continued contributions uh, through to uh, a later age. Uh, You may remove the employer consent Um, to being able to stay on beyond retirement age. A common feature of late retirement rules is typically that the employer and or the trustees may have to give their consent for someone to stay on, so you may look to perhaps remove that. But uh, in terms of benefits, again, if you're allowed to stay on, uh, you would expect the death and service benefits uh, to continue on too. Um, Just a point around the the flexible retirement, that if you maintain a normal retirement age and you allow someone to draw down a lump sum, remain in employment and defer the pension income, uh, you can't continue to provide the death and service benefit um, because the person has, in effect, retired. Uh, at the point uh, of drawing the lump sum. So, um, you know, if people aren't drawing down their benefits and deferring the whole lot, then life insurance would continue. Disability is a bit different. Uh, employers are, 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 I suppose, maybe looking at self-insurance options there um, because it, it is relatively expensive uh, to to extend out normal uh, retirement age for disability benefits because it increases the the term or the potential term of the claim uh, uh, and that brings with it a cost.
0: Maybe we just stay on that for a minute actually when you talk about disability and risk because I know we get a lot of questions about maintaining insurance after 65 and most employers want to do that. So can you talk to us a little bit about the issues that come up when you want to maintain the insurance in place past 65 or maintain the disability benefits in place because I know that's a big concern for a lot of employers.
3: Yeah, I mean, the first thing is the insurance company's been a suspicious lot Uh, assume that if you have an individual Uh, who wishes to stay on, uh, they will assume that they're staying on simply to benefit from the the death and service provisions. Uh, So typically uh, they would look to underwrite that member on the entire benefit. Um, Whereas if you are making a a change at scheme level or for perhaps a a large cohort of members, the view is taken that there isn't that selection against the insurance company. So you tend to find uh, that they would either cover everyone or they may perhaps require just an actively at work declaration that someone has worked for a certain period of time pre the date of change and on the basis that they have, um, that the cover may continue uh, post-retirement. For disability claimants, uh, again, it's it's slightly more complicated because the date of claim is, in effect, the day that someone goes out. Uh, So if you have existing claimants or people who are potential claimants, the claim date has already passed and the insurance company won't entertain an extension uh, to the the payment term, uh, linked to any new retirement age, um, because in effect the premium being charged has been based on the uh, the original retirement age, uh, so you may have to look at self insurance or perhaps you know a, an individual once-off payment uh, to the insurance company to extend uh, the payment out. But there's not a great appetite for that amongst insurers in Ireland.
0: And and what are most employers doing if they're faced with those options or does it really Um, depend?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly where cover can be obtained uh, and if they have pockets deep enough to to meet the costs, I think the preference is to insure. Um, I think um, if they can't get cover, there's a bit of an administrative nightmare because you have to keep a tab on those who were out, manage it when they come back to work, make sure that you can then uh, grant the cover uh, to them. Um, but I think yeah, insurance certainly, if you can get it, uh, apply it. And it's probably at this point it's worth saying that if you have an employer and perhaps a union group or an employee body when you're negotiating you know what you're doing around us, it's important to say that you know we can grant that benefit subject to the underwriter being willing to give cover because if you glibly promise, uh, yes, death and service benefits or disability benefits will continue and you can't underwrite that, um, then it, it falls back on you as the employer, as a self-insurance issue.
0: And just when you talk about there, can you, you, can you get cover, or if you can get cover, can you talk to us a little bit about cost, if that's possible, in terms of, you know, you're insuring a potentially an older population?
3: Yeah, so very broadly, um, life insurance costs don't tend to go up too much uh, when you look to extend it for the group, um, simply because unless you have a, a real sort of cohort who are very close to the original retirement age, insurers look at death and service over a, typically a two or three year period. So unless your age demographic is going to significantly shift into the sort of the post 65 category, you're really only looking at a percentage point or two uh, in terms of uh, increasing uh, cost. For disability, though, uh, the picture's completely different. If you're looking to move towards, say, 68, the cost can probably jump up to around 20 by 25%. Uh, if you were looking to peg the new retirement age to 66, 67, uh, 68, you're probably looking at an increase of sort of 10 to 15% uh, and disability premiums and death and service pension uh, premium costs have already uh, increased significantly over the last number of the years because of interest rates falling and uh, so it can be quite a substantial
0: cost. Okay, so it's definitely something to keep in mind. I want to go back to something, Jane, that you said there earlier, I think both yourself and Gary have touched on it, that you can provide different pension benefits pre and post contractual retirement age, if you like. So you could be in a DB scheme until you're 65 and then you ask to stay on for a couple of years and the employer says, yes, okay, but you can't stay in the DB scheme, you're moving to the DC scheme and whatever kind of arrangement we might decide to put in place for you. And what we're being asked a bit of is is that discrimination or is that in any way in contravention of the principle of equal pension treatment and maybe just talk to us a little bit about how you get around that or what your views are on that
2: Yeah so that uh, certainly seems to be on employers radar when they're thinking about uh, what kind of benefit provision they want to make for people post five so as I said they're um, enamored with the idea of continuing the same benefit provision for people post-65, and I think part of that is while employers are willing to facilitate people staying on, they might not want to encourage it wholesale, so they they might want to make it slightly less attractive um, to stay on past 65 than it was prior to 65, and certainly um, there's a number of strands of uh, anti-discrimination law in Ireland that would make you think you you should be providing the exact same suite of benefits uh, pre and post retirement and from the pensions angle the the main thing is the principle of equal pensions treatment and that says that you can't discriminate um, against anyone in a pension scheme on any of nine grounds including things like family status, gender and of course age. So again immediately it looks like um, if you're giving someone DB benefits, say, up to 65, and then DC benefits after 65, it looks on its face as if that would be discriminatory on the grounds of age. I guess, happily enough, for employers, the uh, Pensions Act contains a number of savers with respect to age. So um, it sets out the nine grounds on which you can't discriminate. And then in, under a number of the grounds, are, are exceptions, so behaviour that would appear to be discriminatory is in fact not considered to be discriminatory under the Pensions Act. Uh, some examples of those would be that it's not discriminatory to fix different uh, ages or lengths of qualifying service to provide different contribution levels. Now that's traditionally been used to provide higher contribution levels to people with like longer um, periods of service or as they get older <coughs> and approach retirement. Now, on that particular one, you have to have a legitimate aim of the employer backing it up, and again, traditionally, employers would have said, uh, these individuals, you know, it's good for the business to have them here for longer, and uh, if they're older, they're probably um, providing a wealth of experience into the business, and on that basis, we can provide uh, a higher contribution level to those individuals. Now, that's kind of being flipped, and it's being used to, say, provide any contribution uh, post-65. Coming up with a legitimate aim for that is obviously going to be a bit more tricky, but it doesn't seem to be impossible. Certainly, we have uh, seen employers who are doing it when we're acting for trustees. Um, uh, And I would say that, in general, the grounds or the savers that are there under the Pensions Act probably weren't designed to deal with the the kind of situation that we're looking at now in terms of cutting benefits rather than uh, providing different benefits for different cohorts of people but they do seem to be drafted widely enough to allow a, a relatively good degree of flexibility for employers in terms of setting different benefits pre and post 65. And I guess the only other thing I'd say on that is um, while that works for benefits that are provided under the pension scheme, those savers don't apply for benefits that are provided outside its pension scheme, so disability benefit, for example, wouldn't generally be provided through the scheme, so you're not looking at a a Pensions Act discrimination claim there, you're back
0: into just employment law and employment uh, discrimination factors. Is that something that you want to pick up on on the employment side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose if it is a case of keeping employees on post-retirement age and you are distinguishing between the benefits offered to those employees versus what an employer would offer a comparable permanent employee, um, then there is, I suppose, a multitude of claims the employee could take again an age discrimination claim if they're retained on post-retirement on a fixed-term contract, and the employee is entitled to not be treated less favourably than a comparable permanent worker would be treated. And so there could be a claim there under the Fixed-Term Contract Act that the, the worker could take for that difference in benefits, and the employer would need to show that the difference in treatment was, again, objectively justified by a means that's appropriate and necessary. So I suppose it objectively justifying the difference in benefits then goes back to Gary's point about, is the cost disproportionate to continue somebody on insurance or on long-term disability insurance or some other benefit, or in fact, can the employer bridge that cost? So I guess that throws up its own own issues as to whether they can justify that difference in treatment or whether they should just have them on the same terms.
0: Okay, okay. I'm conscious as well that we haven't talked about trustees at all, so if you are changing potentially pension benefits pre and post this contractual retirement age, potentially the scheme documentation, your pension scheme documentation will need to be amended. And for that to happen, the trustees will need to agree to amendments. So, Jane, you might talk to us a little bit about if you are the trustee of a pension scheme, what would you need to consider if an employer comes to you and says, we're trying to facilitate this now in our workforce uh, and we want the pension scheme to do something likewise?
2: Sure. So um, we have seen those types of queries come in from trustees and particularly where the employer is talking about, uh, say, stopping accrual in the DB scheme and providing DC provision uh, after 65 and in the case we were looking at the employer was also changing the rules to say you couldn't take any of your benefits at 65 you had to defer everything to the date of actual retirement which was a significant change for people who had been previously allowed to either take their lump sum at 65 or their entire benefit at 65 and continue working. So the trustees um, felt Quite concerned that this was quite a big uh, change in circumstances for individuals and uh, were wondering whether it was appropriate for them to make the necessary amendments to their scheme. In that case, or really in any case, I guess the change in approach is very much driven by the employer and I suppose overall there is a sense that future benefit provision is more a matter for the employer than it is for trustees. The trustees' main uh, focus should be on the protection of accrued benefits. I'd also say in a kind of high-level approach that the alternative to this might be that the employer would decide we're not going to be able to allow or facilitate employees to stay in employment at all. And on a personal or individual level, it's the employee who's coming to the employer saying, can I stay in employment past 65 So, to some extent, I would say it it is a matter for the employee and the employer to decide between them what's appropriate in terms of uh, provision post-65. If if the employee and the employer are kind of driving it between themselves, I'm not sure that the trustees have a whole lot uh, to do in terms of setting that policy or uh, trying to feed into that policy. The one area the trustees do have to be very careful of is that they're... Uh, complying with the principle of equal pensions treatment because that absolutely applies as much to the trustees as it does to the employer so in in that respect the trustees would need to take advice just in terms of the particular changes that the employer is trying to make and while I said there's a good degree of flexibility there for the employer in terms of providing different benefits not everything is allowable so the trustees would want to satisfy themselves that they are complying with the principle of equal pensions treatment when they're agreeing to any amendments I suppose the two other things I'd mention is that, depending on what the employer is proposing, there could be significant increase in administrative requirements. If you've got individuals who are now members of two schemes, revenue requires that you take all benefits relating to the same employment at the same time, so the trustees would have to be involved with their administrators in ensuring that that's being complied with. And also, chatting um, earlier during the week to Gary, he brought up the point that the investment area would need to be looked at because a lot of schemes provide a lifestyling approach for individuals as they approach retirement. So their investments would be put into safer bonds or cash to ensure that they are not subject to a lot of volatility just as they are coming up to retirement. So that would that might start five or ten years before retirement, and if you have people pushing out their retirement, uh, you know, three, four, five years beyond wh- what was expected. You need to consider whether some kind of change or flexibility needs to be built into that um,
0: approach. Yeah, and just being open to that point, Gary, are members selecting their own <coughs> investments at this point? Or how is that dealt with in terms of the life cycle of the scheme?
3: Yeah, um, I mean, we've had uh, some cases where there's been the creation of what's been known as the operable retirement age in addition to your normal retirement age and your contractual retirement age, and that's in effect the the date that you use as your sort of your your de-risking yeah. uh, point. Um, so, yes, we're definitely seeing trustees maybe take a view, and maybe initially that if there is an expectation that more people will retire at say the new retirement age, then maybe it makes sense to align um, the uh, the de-risking period to that age. Um, But there's definitely a move towards individualization where, you know, you're perhaps going out to the members and asking them to select an age at which they think they will retire. The problem with doing that, of course, is if you're approaching your current workforce Mm -hmm. uh, and speaking to your 25-year-olds, they'll all say, yeah, we're going to go early or, you know, and then... (laughs) We're not doing this forever. (laughs) Yeah, and then you get to kind of sort of the mid-50s and sort of, you know, it dawns on people that it has to change. So do you need to go out every so often to try and refresh? That obviously brings with it an administrative uh, burden. But I think typically trustees have uh, been setting a, a sort of operable retirement age for the majority, okay. maybe taking pernic- a particular cognizance of people who are close to retirement who may already have made plans and maybe have been paying ABCs targeting a particular age. Um, but I think individualization is definitely going to be a feature.
0: So administratively, it's definitely one to watch, yeah without that. yeah yeah, okay, I am conscious of time, but I'm gonna go back to you, jar um because I'm conscious this is predominantly like an employment issue, so if you were to give some tips or some guidance to an employer in terms of what steps they should be taking now or how they should be preparing themselves for this in the knowledge that this is coming, and somebody's going to ask for this at some point in time, yeah, what would you say? what would you um, say?
1: Yeah, I suppose the, I think the first approach is to that employer should audit their current practice. So, um, you know, determine do they have uh, contractual retirement ages expressly provided for in contracts? Are they in the employee handbook? Is the handbook buried somewhere or has it been communicated to employees? And are they well aware of, of the terms of it and of the contractual retirement age specified within it? And secondly, then the employer needs to, again, consider what objective justification it would rely on if it was challenged on the enforcement of a compulsory retirement age and stress test that I suppose you know try and come up with worked examples as to how that would stand up if it was challenged before a court or tribunal and then I would say secondly the employer should put in place a retirement policy and again communicate that to employees so if you're having a contractual retirement age set it out in the policy set out the objective justification in the policy and then include other procedures in the policy policy around, you know, the, the lead up to retirement. For example, the code of practice that I mentioned on longer working that the WRC published um, suggests that employers should be meeting with employees six to 12 months in advance of them reaching retirement age. You know, sitting down with the employee and asking them what are their plans for retirement, trying to anticipate, I suppose, a request to work longer, or perhaps whether the employee is perfectly happy to, to work just up until that date, and explore options with the persons So explore perhaps flexible working arrangements, part-time working arrangements. The policy should also set out a request to work past retirement age procedure as well. So again, just recommended guidelines would be that, you know, at least three months in advance of the person reaching their retirement age, that they approach the employer and set out their request to work for longer, perhaps in writing. And then there should be a meeting scheduled with the person to explore that request. And the employer should, again, be shown to have, you know, very much considered it and considered it. in in line with its business um, to see if it can facilitate that request. The Code of Practice also mentions that employers should roll out age diversity training. And I think it's a really good recommendation, particularly in organizations where there is maybe perhaps an an imbalance in in the workforce and in the age structure within the workforce. So you know, we work with a lot of tech companies and a lot of startups, I suppose, that have grown exponentially within a very short period of time. But there can be very much an imbalance in the age structure there. And, and I think, you know, rolling out, we we all roll out diversity training on, you know, on other grounds, but actually age isn't always included within that. So I think that's also a really good thing to consider. And then last of all, I suppose I would say, you know, just be consistent. So if employees are looking to work beyond retirement, and the employer is That request, then the employer should be consistent in terms of, you know, exceeding to the request for one person versus another, so to ensure that there's not again a risk of a person challenging it on discriminatory grounds.
0: So that concludes our discussion from the seminar, but this is definitely something we'll be coming back to in the coming months. In the meantime, please do contact us directly if you have any questions on this topic or any related issues. We'd be happy to discuss them further. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Pensions Podcast. For more information, go to matheson.com forward slash pensions.